0: I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep, EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps, encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak, fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach, Thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments. Those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How Can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices? Thanks for tuning in. Our guest is Rochelle Dene-Poth. Rochelle is a Spanish teacher, STEAM teacher, as well as an attorney. She's a frequent blogger, presenter, podcast, and author. Rochelle is the president of the ISTE Teacher Education Network and recently received the ISTE Making It Happen Award. Rochelle, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, and thank you for such a welcome introduction to me. (laughs) I'm excited to be here and talk with you today, so thanks again for the invitation.
0: Rochelle, something that jumped out to me from looking at your work and even the introduction is uh, is you're a teacher, but you also have a law background. Can you talk a little bit about how they're connected?
1: Yes, that is one of the most common questions that I'm asked because people often <laughs> think that I was an attorney first and then went to went back to school to get my degree to become a teacher. And it's actually the opposite. Hmm. Uh, it's I don't know how much time you have. It's kind of interesting how yeah, I ended plenty. up how I ended up on that path, but it's just it it shows that you never really know where you're going to end up and hmm. I mean going back to when I graduated from Penn State, I had my degree in teaching, secondary education yeah. in French and could not get a job. People suggested that I go back and get another certification, which then I got the Spanish and I then was able to finally get a full-time job teaching at my current school where I am now. And during that time when I got my Spanish certification, they had a program in translation at the University of Pittsburgh. And so you -hmm. had to do things like translate business documents and engineering and law and just so many different areas. And the law portion of it was really interesting to me. And I'd never thought about being an attorney. I actually a little bit thought about being a paralegal, kind of on the side of teaching but even then it was one of those you know we always have these thoughts well maybe i could do this uh so anyway a couple years go by and i decide i'm gonna take the the law school exam took it got the scores had no idea what they meant forgot about it for a couple of years and then i decided one day i wonder if i could apply and go to law school and decided to apply but then i had to take the test again and got the scores back again not having a clue but in Pittsburgh, we have, there's two options. There is Duquesne University and there's Pitt, but only Duquesne offered a night program because I was mm. teaching full time and wasn't going to quit teaching to go to law school. So I think I was already in my sixth or seventh year of teaching at the time when I did this. So it was a four year program, four nights a week. So I was really spending my entire day in classrooms, but uh, yeah, I graduated in, oh goodness, 2006. So it's it's been a while, but I honestly, when I look back at it and compared to where I am now, I think had it not been for that experience, I don't know that I would still be teaching just because of all that I learned from it and how it changed me personally and professionally.
0: Interesting. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? How did that experience um, really keep you in the teaching field even till today?
1: Yeah, it was, uh, I think, well, probably my first year of law school and one of the classes, my contract law course, I remember, I mean, I'm not, some things come easy to me and <laughs> some things just, I mean, we're all like that, right? We have our areas where we really excel in it and, and we don't have to do a lot to prep for it, but then there are some things where you could read it over and over again and study and it's like you forget everything and so when it came to contract law, I studied the case book and we had to present cases in class and you kind of knew I, I had never heard of the Socratic method. So that was the first problem, Was I didn't know what to <laughs> expect. So it was my, my teacher went alphabetically. And the first time he called me in class, I had read, done all the prep. I had every book, you name it. And he was just asking me these questions and I couldn't, I couldn't answer them. I was so used to just answering easy kind of questions that you could kind of read and get it, but not interpreting or analyzing at a higher level. And that point, that point started to get me to think about the types of questions that I was asking my students in my classes, but also because he spent about three hours between two nights of class a week apart trying to get me to come up with answers to his questions. And Mm. that was the first piece is I experienced what it's like for some students when they don't know the answer. And maybe as teachers, I know I did this, I would try and coax them along. But when you would start, when I would start to see that kind of discomfort on their face, I would kind of feel bad. Like I knew what that was like. And sometimes Mm. I would let them go. Well, now I tell my students, I have incredible wait time because this one time in law school and I tell the story. So the first thing is it, it got me to experience again, what it's like to be a, as a student, to not have the answers, to be uncomfortable mm-hmm. in that space. But also the bigger piece of it is it helped me to better understand the importance of relationships in our classroom between us as teachers and students and facilitating that within our students as well. So I had a tremendous mentor from one as one of my professors And uh, even to this day, we are still connected. And I really do credit him with helping me to see what it really does mean to be a teacher, uh, the Mm. time investment, and just so much of it. So that's kind of when I say, I don't know if I would still be in teaching. It's, you know, it led me down this different path where I started to be more open to building relationships in the classroom and kind of stepping back from the content or the things that I had always been doing because they worked for me, but getting to know the students Mm -hmm. more. So.
0: Yeah, that's good. And I I think hearing this will be inspiring uh, for some of our listeners who are thinking to themselves, uh, I could never do that, right? Be a full-time teacher and go back to law school. So I have to ask the follow-up question. How did you do that? Uh, You were a full-time teacher and then you went back to law school because that's not a normal thing that that teachers do.
1: No. And as you're asking me that, I'm laughing because I'm thinking... (laughs) I I don't know, and I even say now I have no idea how I did that, even though my days now are so full because I'm involved in so many different things. It's not yeah. it's not uncommon that I'm working 15, 16-hour days, but just one, because I didn't have to do it. I mean, I had a great job, and I, I did not do it to get out of teaching at that point. I mean, even though I wasn't sure I wanted to stay in teaching for mm-hmm. a, 30 years of a career, but I wasn't doing it as a way to get out of teaching. But I think because people were kind of looking like, why is she doing this? And I really wanted to challenge myself and see if I could do it. And I figured I better not give up. I better not complain yeah. about being tired because I made this choice. And so yeah. I put everything into it that I could. And I, I, I just, I made it work somehow. I mean, there were long days because I would go from school to school although midweek I would do the drive home. And I think on those days, hundred miles on the car, which is not a big deal, mm. but after a full day of work and then going to class and get home at 10 o'clock at night, eat dinner, studying, mm. get up the next day. But I got used to it and had a good system for it. Now, obviously some things had to kind of, I mean, going to the gym, really that didn't happen anymore <laughs> watching TV, which, you know, but, uh, but all of the benefits from it, the the learning and the connections that I made were so much more valuable than all the other things. So I just mm. I did. I don't I don't know that I could do it again, but <laughs> I was also a little bit younger then compared to now. I don't know.
0: Okay, so it can be done, but uh, but it's it's definitely a lot of hard work over a, a four year period
1: yeah and, and it I mean there are so many teachers who are out there getting their master's degrees or working mm-hmm. on their doctorates and doing dissertations yeah. and it's not that it's all that different than doing that. there's a huge amount of work and you're still trying to find that balance, so it definitely can be done. It's just you have to kind of realign your schedule and find something that works yeah. for you so
0: yeah, well, I'm I'm actually getting my doctorate right now, and I think uh, the workload that you're talking about is much more than what I'm experiencing. So, so I, I think that's a tougher, <laughs> I think that's a tougher challenge. The the JD. Um, so you have a lot of uh, interesting uh, combinations here, right? You you know the l- law background. You're a teacher, um, and then you also have an interesting combination in the subjects that you teach, right? You teach right. Spanish and Steam, and I. I know a couple of lawyers that are teachers, but I think you're the first Spanish uh, and STEAM teacher that I've talked with. Uh, Can you talk about how they connect?
1: I mean, I grew up using technology. I started to do coding and all the things. I mean, I've always been a fan of technology and very interested in it. But in my school, I was using some different digital tools in my classroom with my students in my Spanish classes for years And then it was probably six years ago now that our school got a grant to change and renovate the library into more of a makerspace. And with me teaching languages, French and Spanish at the time, and the arts, that's where they were going to kind of move a course into the seventh and eighth grade uh, rotations. So my principal called me, and this is kind of funny, called me into the office and he said, so we're going to have these rotations for STEAM. And we want for you to teach hummingbirds. And I don't know. I probably made a face, but I don't know if he (laughs) noticed it at this time. And I just, okay. And he said, yeah, you're going to teach hummingbirds. And I said, well, what am I going to do with it? And he said, well, just uh, connect it to the culture, the French, the Spanish, and have the students create. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm imagining the hummingbirds that are outside of my house in the summer, right? I had no clue. And I'm thinking, they're going to bring hummingbirds into the classroom? Like, (laughs) how does that work? And so I didn't say anything. I just nodded my head and said, okay, sounds great. And I went back to my room and I Googled it. And I figured out that it was with bird brain technologies here out of Pittsburgh, hummingbird robots made way Mm -hmm. more sense. So I did that for, I think, two years, and I wasn't all that great at it. I was good enough just to get the students started and and let them totally run with it. But third year, I got really comfortable with it, and that's when they decided to move that to the seventh grade. So he called me in again, and he said, what do you want to teach in your class? And I named 10 different topics, probably. And some of those were the AR, VR and artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so that's how my course now that I've taught for probably the last five years is what's next in emerging tech. Now, with that being said, we do a lot with emerging technologies, but we go back and look at old technology and uh, also look at things like digital citizenship and helping them to build just the, the vital skills that sometimes I'm guilty of this. I assume that they have, but they really don't have. So it kind of works them through building all those skills, but also learning about all of these emerging trends that are going to play a big part in their future. And of course, they are for us now as well.
0: Hmm. So are you teaching uh, Spanish on a regular basis in in the school building?
1: Yes, I teach uh, Spanish one through four. And then I have one course of eighth graders in the STEAM course.
0: So you mentioned AR and VR, um, you know, it's, it's definitely becoming more popular, but it's also not in every school, right? It's not a common thing. Um, what are some ways uh, that you use AR and VR in your classroom? And if you could just, um, in your description, uh, just describe it in a way as if, as if people um, don't have much experience with using those uh, platforms.
1: Yeah, so the first The best advice that I can give, and I think about how I started with it, was Mm -hmm. actually using Nearpod. And for my Spanish classes, so often we would be reading about places where Spanish is spoken, and I would say, I I could show a video, or my students could look at pictures, but in the readers, the pictures were often just drawings, and you would try to describe it and say, well, just imagine what this would look like, or let's pretend... But when Mm. you use the virtual reality, like in the tool Nearpod, for example, you have these VR trips. So it's a 360 image that students don't need to put their phones into a headset to kind of get that feeling like they're actually there, but it enables them to really get a closer look at the place they're talking about or learning about and be curious and kind of look around that space. Now, for some people, maybe who use things like my students were unimpressed at first with ARVR. they <laughs> said, we do that. We use Snapchat. I said, well, it's kind of beyond Snapchat or going back to Pokemon Go, if anybody has done that, which yeah. augmented reality. So you can, you still see your surroundings, but you're able to put something in the space that you're in. So maybe you like I don't know, elephants and you put an elephant in your living room and you're like, is the elephant really there? No, it's (laughs) augmented reality. But going beyond that with my Spanish classes, being able to have them look at these different places and even picking three or four different places and having them look closely so that it kind of immerses them in that space and they can look around. It's also really good for helping them to develop you know global and cultural awareness and empathy because they can look at four distinct geographical locations and make their own kind of connection with what they're seeing rather than everybody's looking at the same video. For example, my Steam course and even in my Spanish course, they we use some different tools where students are actually creating, not just consuming. So it's kind mm. of fun to see what they come up with. And it's there are tools and apps out there for every level to use. It just depends on, of course, what your access is or the types of devices that you have, but there's definitely no shortage of options out there.
0: So when you're using, let's say the example that you gave with Nearpod and, you know, they go to a location and they get immersed in it. Are they doing that on a device like a Chromebook or do they have the headset as well?
1: We have in my school, uh, some of the students have their own devices We do have some iPads that we use, and then some of these tools, you can actually just use them on the regular desktop computer, and most of of what we use, you can kind of use any device for, but in terms of creating, sometimes it's specific to a certain device, or students might need to have an app, and they may not necessarily have the most recent phone that's the newest updates Mm -hmm. to do that, but... The other thing too is for some of my students and I mean, even for adults using those headsets sometimes makes you feel like you get that motion sickness. Right. Uh, so it's still, it's not as close to an experience if you don't have that, but you can still kind of look through and, mm-hmm. uh, Kind of have fun with that. So I, I I make sure that I have enough available for my students because we are not as of now 1 to 1 although with this upcoming upcoming school year with the changes with uh the way things are in the world we are yep. definitely working with that to make sure everybody has a device.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I asked that because you know some of our listeners might think, well, okay, I don't have 30 headsets, so I'm not you know, I'm not doing that. But but you might say to them you can still utilize this um through the technology that you do have although it may not be you know the same experience but you'll still be able to benefit from it is that is that correct
1: yes There's it's a lot of fun just to see what's out there. And I know for some teachers, I was one of them for years. I didn't see how I could use these things in my Spanish class. And my students, finally, one day, I was in the library with my eighth graders. And Hmm. some of my students were in their study hall. And they came in and could see what my eighth graders were working on. And they kept asking me, how come we can't do that cool AR, VR stuff? (laughs) And I, I didn't have an answer for them. I just, it never occurred to me because I was in my mind thinking, this is STEAM, this is for a technology course, but you can use it no matter what you're teaching. It's just, I mean, if you're teaching history, there are so many options out there that you can take students on a tour to different historical places, for example.
0: Yeah. You mentioned briefly about students possibly being creators of, of this, you know, using this tool and being, becoming a creator of it. Uh, that's exciting uh, to me. And I think that's exciting to, to a lot of people. Would you be able to give just a brief example of how a student could become a creator of so that other people could use AR and VR in immersive ways?
1: Yeah. So there are, I mean, let me think of a, a quick example. CoSpaces, for example, is mm-hmm. one that students can create different spaces. And I've had students who did, instead of doing maybe a book report, or if they had to tell a story, or if they were learning something in science, I try to often with my eighth graders, especially connect my class with their other classes so that they're creating something for me, but it's also something that they need for the other class. So it's, you know, has a purpose, Mm -hmm. but they could then create a space where they're showing. I don't know, what happened in a story, and they have characters, and there's narration, or they could put audio in, and then that could be something that they share with their teacher, that the teacher shares with other teachers or students to kind of review a book or to be a hook into a lesson. Uh, Students could also create a tour and use some of these different apps and video or take pictures and kind of add different focus points into some of these different platforms that are out there and then add narration and people who don't go to that school or don't live in that town could go through and use their vr headset if they want and explore and see what it's like kind of in a more immersive way
0: what a what a great example and then having students becoming the the creator of that that's that's great um you have a new book out a uh, chart a new course can you tell us a little bit about the book
1: yeah. So that is my most recent book that I wrote uh, with Isti. And the book, it's kind of funny. I noticed between all of my books, you don't really have to read them from cover to cover, which was not anything that I set out to do. But the idea behind it is it's broken down into uh, five chapters. And each chapter focuses on something like it could be digital citizenship and helping students to kind of learn, like I was telling you in my eighth grade class and getting Mm -hmm. them started learning how to be responsible online. And then it also focuses in large part on social emotional learning, which are directly connected to, I keep saying the skills the students need in the future, but they need them now too. Mm -hmm. Uh, So ideas for doing that, helping them to you know digital storytelling, it does have some of the AR and VR in it. It also explores making global connections for our students, project-based learning, choice boards, a lot of the topics and things that we're hearing now, are, and that we have been hearing, but in a way that anybody who picks it up, you could you could find one of the chapters and think, okay, this is where I want to start, and just pick it up, look at some of the examples. Every chapter ends with a five to try. It also has some short vignettes from some of my students and some other educators from around the world who shared their own experiences, Mm -hmm. but it makes it so you don't feel overwhelmed, which was my goal, especially now thinking in the upcoming school year if you're looking for ideas of how to connect with students in that virtual space, what are the tools to do that? Or how to help students build those relationship skills with their peers and with you in the virtual space. But even ideas that are in it that, I mean, they work whether we're in our classrooms or we're at home and working remotely and teaching remotely. But uh, some of them, and they don't all rely on technology either. So there's kind Hmm. of an, an overlap. In some of the ideas that without the tech, you can still do them.
0: Yes, yeah, you think about the book now, right? It's a it's a newer book, but uh what was your favorite chapter to write?
1: Oh my. Uh I I, I do like writing about the augmented virtual reality, I will tell you that, mm. because I've just seen so many interesting projects that my students have created. But probably my favorite would be when students have a chance to show what they know because mm giving them the choice in how to, I mean, one example, project-based learning, where when we first started it, they really struggled with, well, what am I supposed to create? Do I need a poster board? Is it a project? Is it a PowerPoint? And trying to tell them, no, it's whatever you feel like you want to create, you have a choice. And that's kind, that's hard for students to kind of figure out on their own. Well, I, I don't know. I'm so used to somebody telling me it has to be like this. Yeah. So giving students that option and just I love the ideas that have come from my students. So that is definitely one of my favorite ones. And then even uh, in in an area that I've really looked more into and tried to learn a lot more about, especially in preparation for this year, uh, social emotional learning skills too, Mm -hmm. which years ago, I didn't know what it was referred to as. And a lot of times we hear, hear things like blended learning or app smashing and think, well, I'm not doing that. But the reality is a lot of these things we are already doing. We just don't necessarily know what they're called. And that's what it was like Mm -hmm. for me with social emotional learning. I thought, oh, yeah, I guess I'm I'm kind of doing that. But what can I do better? How can I do that? provide more for my students
0: in the book and in our conversation today, we've talked a lot about sort of the future of learning, right? Thinking about how things are going to be changing in the near future and maybe even changing in the coming weeks and months. Um, What do you think? And there's so much out there, right? We can become overwhelmed quickly. So what do you think are some of the most important components um, as we think about the future of learning?
1: Well, I think one thing that I had a conversation with some of my juniors and my seniors at the end of this past school year was they were feeling overwhelmed because of having all of the courses online and trying to balance everything. And I know that looking to the future, not all of of my students are are going to college and some of them don't know what they're doing and some of them have their mindset on this is the career they're going to follow. And I think that one piece of advice or, I mean, part of our conversation with them was Look at, try to take the positives out of this, even though nobody wanted to go into this full online learning and have all of your courses online, but the skills that it's helping you to develop are going to benefit you in the next school year. If you're in college or if you go and you work and you find out that your job is now you're working remotely. And so providing students an opportunity where they're building these different skills that no matter what they decide to do when they leave my classroom or our school's, They're going to be able to kind of adapt to whatever is happening in their class if they're at college or if they're working somewhere. Uh, So Mm. I think it's important to give them opportunities to kind of build a variety of skills. And that means bringing in technology or even without technology using different strategies, for example, project-based learning where students have to kind of decide what they want to study. And they have that independence to kind of chart their own path, chart a new course, <laughs> throw out mm-hmm. the name of the book there, and <laughs> uh, design and, and figure out what they're interested in and what their skills are. And that, again, ties back into social-emotional learning where they're becoming you know, the mm-hmm. self-awareness and their, their management and how to balance time and deal with stress and make decisions.
0: So we're listening to that. We're getting excited. How would you advise someone to go about that? Um, Creating a classroom where the student is a designer or they're giving choice, they're learning to adapt. Um, So I guess what I'm asking is, do you have a couple specific examples um, that demonstrate that sort of learning um, that people could sort of grasp onto and then make it their own?
1: Definitely project-based learning, which was another thing that I was very wrong about years ago i thought i had been doing pbl for a long time and i realized i was just doing learning based on projects and assigning my students Mm. all the same thing but in the years that we have been doing pbl all of my students have really enjoyed the opportunity to kind of self-direct and explore something that they were interested in and i've noticed that just in our conversations that we've had after it. And also they've had with their peers in giving each other feedback. And sometimes the feedback was a little rough, but uh, (laughs) I mean, we, we need that pushback too, but hearing them say, and actually I should say, not even just hearing them, seeing them focusing less on the end result and the grade and learning more about the process and wanting to see the next step. I've had a lot of students say, I really like being able to make my own schedule and look at whatever I'm interested in. Mm. And I stopped caring so much about the grade. I just wanted to know, what have I done? What have I learned? Where do I go next? So PBL is something that, again, whether we're in our schools or working and teaching remotely, you can use that. And I think it's important to find different strategies, methods, or tools that enable us to make those transitions because we might have to make those unfortunately, on a regular basis here in the upcoming year or beyond. So PBL Genius Hour is another one that, again, gives students a chance to kind of share their genius or look into something that they have a passion about or they're curious about. And at the last couple weeks of our school year, my eighth graders were doing Genius Hour. And a couple of times they sent me some pictures. One student went around the household and just grabbed random objects and just tried to make some type of a contraption, sent me pictures and just along the process. And it was it was interesting just to see what their ideas were. Uh, Definitely a fun way to learn, but it gives students more independence. Now other options, people tend to use choice boards and Create different ways for students to kind of show what they've learned and where they are in the learning process. So that's another idea that students can use as well. And um, yeah, I, I mean, it's probably a lot more tools out there, but just thinking things that are easy and quick to get started with, those are probably the top three.
0: Appreciate the practical examples. Um, Genius Hour uh, is it students doing it, uh, exploring something for an hour, or how do you break that break that up and help the students?
1: That is a great question because <laughs> it's funny. I just was listening to Don Wettrick, who is the author of Pure Genius, and he was talking about Genius Hour. And I had never really heard of it until I read his book, Pure Genius, but it goes back to um, like Google in the 80-20 time. And so how you break it up, it varies. Sometimes schools, classrooms will make it one hour per week. So if I mean, not all classes have classes each day, they're one hour, but Mm -hmm. somehow arrange it so it's 20% of whatever the class time is, that's devoted to the genius hour in the classroom. And students have that opportunity to kind of just look into something, design something if they want to. Uh, you know, if you have to give them, sometimes I give them ideas. I mean, you can, there's, you can always Google and look for ideas for Genius Hour okay. and things to explore. Another site that I looked at was that Wonderopolis where students kind of went through and every day there's a, a wonder and it's, did you ever wonder why this is? And so at the hmm. bottom of it, they give you some prompts or extensions And that was also something in the end of the last school year that I suggested to students and I share with their families. Maybe this is something that you can kind of all do together to make that connection with families and uh, to the school with the students. But definitely the pure genius. And then also AJ Giuliani and John Spencer had written the book Launch, but then John Spencer also does some different videos about Genius Hour and... uh, Andy McNair had also written a book about Genius Hour. There's there's a lot of information out there, but it is easy to get started with it, depending on the grade level that you teach, too. Because for me, with my sophomores, juniors, and seniors, and actually even with the eighth graders, I just gave them the option, I want you to self-direct in some way, find Mm. something you're interested in, here's how it's going to work in our classroom. For us, it was Fridays, just because that's what they chose. And I said, okay, we'll see how that goes. I know why they chose Friday. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it wasn't a surprise. I actually thought they'd choose Monday, but okay. they decided to to take Friday and I thought, OK, so we'll see how this goes.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that was really helpful to to have students start to take ownership of their learning and explore things that they're really passionate about. So so that's exciting. Hopefully people listening uh, now will will look into that as well. Um, so, Rochelle, we are getting to the end of our conversation. Uh, who do you want to give a shout out to?
1: Does it just have to be one person? <laughs>
0: uh yeah, you could no. you could open up the floodgates if you want.
1: Yeah. It's it's hard. There I'm I'm just very thankful for the people mm. who are in my PLN. I have we all need to have connections because for years I kept myself isolated and I, I mean, I lost out on opportunities, but worse, my students lost out on opportunities. But I am going to give a shout out to my core group which is Rodney Turner, Mandy Fralick, Jennifer Cassa Todd, and Tisha Richmond, and my friend Laura Steinbrink. Sorry, I had to, I had to give five there.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah, you, you did it I And actually, uh, one,
1: one more, Jamie Donnelly, okay. because she has given me so much to get me started and worked with me with my ARVR with my students. So without her, I don't know that I would be able to do as many things as I have done with, with those classes.
0: So now it's time for the final word. Rochelle, what would you like to say to close out this podcast?
1: I would like to say that make sure as we face whatever it is that we're going to face in this school year, that you don't keep yourself isolated and you make those connections and keep having conversations and engage and however you can with other educators to keep on learning because we are all going through this together. And so it's important to share what's working, what's not working, and to have that support system set up, but also to offer support to other educators as well.
0: Michelle, this has been wonderful. Thank you for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. I appreciate your time, sharing your experiences, and helping us think deeper about these important issues. To those listening, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Diving Deep EDU. If you like this episode, subscribe. Share it out. Post a review on Apple Podcasts. All of those things will help get this podcast out to more people. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire.